Welcome to How to Build a Village. I am so thrilled to welcome Simon Cambers, a seasoned sports journalist who has covered international sport for national newspapers, magazines, and online for more than 20 years. And he's covered more than 50 Grand Slam events and many more events on both the ATP and WTA tours. He's also a regular contributor to The Guardian, ESPN.com, Glasgow Herald, and Reuters. He's also covered World Cups and Olympic Games and has commentated on tennis for ATP Tennis Radio, the Tennis Channel, Radio Roland Garros, and Australian Open Radio. So perfect guest for our Wimbledon special, having just returned from Paris, where he covered the French Open. And down the line, inside in from Krejcikova is not going to be returned, though. And the Czech, the world number 33, saves five set points, takes her first set point, and she leads this quarterfinal 7-6 against Coco Goff. So welcome, Simon. So excited to have you. Hi, good morning. Very happy to be with you. So as someone who's been covering tennis for such a long time, you're an expert in both the sport, but also the community. I mean, such an international sport. And you have so many names, especially now in the game, who've been playing for such a long time and dominating the sport. So what's it like? The, peop- the, the behind the scenes, is there, what's it like between the other correspondents and the players? Is it, uh, if you could describe a bit the sense of camaraderie you have, warmth, or is that there? Well, it's, pro- it's probably the nicest part of the job, you know, because you're, if you're a correspondent for a newspaper, your, your colleagues, you don't actually work in the office, your colleagues are those who, who you're with when you're at tournaments and or sporting events around the world. So you almost, it's as if you're in a almost a virtual uh, situation, which is quite funny given now where so much stuff is virtual. Yeah. But you, you, the nicest thing about it is that you get to meet so many people from different countries, different nationalities, different languages, and you get to, you know, the common theme bonding you is, is the tennis, but you're, you get to hang out with them after, after the tennis, you get to know about them, you get to become friends. And so, you know, when you go to a different tournament, you meet them again. It's it's always a very relaxed atmosphere. There's a, there's competition between writers from the same country, but mm. I don't think I, mean, I certainly don't see you know a Swiss journalist, for example, as a sort of deadly competitor because mm. for a start, they're writing in in German or Swiss German or you know, or if you're in France, you're writing in French most of the time. But even uh, people from New York Times, you know. I know some of those guys really well. I don't. I don't think we're competing on a day-to-day basis. We are trying to write interesting features that people will look at, and so you do. You know, you're not trying to outdo anyone, but you're just trying to do the, the best job you can. And it's really nice to meet people from the ones who travel. I think in any in any company, really, I always find that the people who travel are the most interesting ones to hang out with anyway. So, you know, when I first started working many, many years ago at Bloomberg News, I I loved the Americans who travelled because they were, you know, they weren't insular. They had thoughts on other things around the world and and you became friends very quickly. When you're with people who are just stuck in one place all the time, it's it's very different. So, yeah, the nicest part about it is the camaraderie that you get. You're, you're watching matches, you're writing about it. Yes, you're trying to write the best thing possible, but generally, and you're trying to break news sometimes, um, but generally there's a lot of a lot of friendship there and, and a, a lot of warmth. It's, quite, it's nice. Now, you cover other sports as well. And 
and have for years. What is it about tennis? How, what sets tennis apart? The, the, the people on the circuit, the people you meet, um, the people you've met as a journalist from covering other sports? I think, I don't know, I think tennis is a more genteel sport in many ways than, than some of the others. Like football's a really cutthroat business. If you cover, I'm talking soccer here. Mm-hmm. If you cover football, um, there is so much competition between the British tabloids, for example, and it's it is pretty cutthroat. You've got to break news all the time. You've got to be the first to get something. In tennis, I don't think it's as much like that because tennis is not as important a sport, or not seen as as such an important sport um, by newspapers, by organisations, and yet it's a truly global sport. So it reaches a lot of people that maybe football doesn't or certainly cricket wouldn't, for example, or other sports, rugby union. Um, I think tennis, we have we are very lucky in that we get very good access to players generally. You know, players have to come in to do a press conference after matches. So we at least get a chance to ask a question. Um, whereas if you're covering football, for example, you, you will get, you'll be in a press conference with the, the manager and maybe one player. And if you're in a mixed zone of where all the players walk through and you can try to stop them, that's a that's a bun fight. That is really hard. Mm-hmm. So a lot of things are improved in tennis in terms of the way we get to meet the players and relate to the players. And by having those press conferences, you build a relationship with the players over time so that if you're ever lucky enough to have a one-on-one interview with them, you know, they know who you are. They know your face. They know you're not going to stick a knife in their back somehow and try and turn them over. Um, so, you, you know, you get a nice relationship with the players as well as as well as with your fellow writers. Well, one of the things I love about your coverage has been that you write not just about the big players, who are, of course, great, but you also cover some of the, the more fringe topics like mixed doubles, like shining a light on this sort of un- uncelebrated aspect of the game that what is it that appeals to you about mixed doubles which you do you don't often see a lot of coverage of it do you no not at all i mean mixed doubles is not played outside of the four grand slam events and the olympics um so you don't see it very often it's only you know in in britain we grew up watching wimbledon on tv Mm -hmm. and on a sort of saturday night halfway through the tournament there'd probably be a mixed doubles involving somebody famous in a british player and it would be on tv at eight o'clock at night and you would just sit there watching it I mean, doubles and mixed doubles are the the form of tennis that most people play at clubs. Mm -hmm. So it gets a lot of appreciation from the fans. And it's very quick. You know, it's much quicker than singles. A lot of rat-a-tat-tat stuff at the net. So I think people respond to it and uh, uh, recognize something that they do themselves a little bit more. And I find, in terms of writing about things like mixed doubles or more feature-y style pieces i i enjoy writing those more than a simple match report because and tennis has changed and the the landscape of tennis journalism has changed over the last 20 years certainly since i started over the last 10 really 10 years ago if i was traveling to let's say indian wells very nice tournament in california beautiful weather very relaxed Mm -hmm. i would tell the newspaper i would tell the guardian look i'm going to indian wells can you use me to cover the tournament and they would say yep that's fine We'll do, we'll do daily coverage, no problem. Now, and that would be mostly just covering the matches or whatever else is going on, and you'd be guaranteed to have something there every day. So as a freelance, you knew that you would be covering your costs and then making a profit and it was worthwhile. Right. But now that doesn't happen anymore. They're not interested in 
simple match reports because a it's a bit boring b every anyone can do it and see it's out there already it's on social media uh, live clips of the press conference are sent around so you could almost cover it from home almost as as well as you can on site in some cases it's always better to be there because you get things that you cut that you won't get from home um so now i i've sort of started to write more featurey articles where you get to talk to players and put it all together and it, you know, it's it's not easy to come up with new ideas all the time, but it's um it's much more fun. So, what do you miss as a viewer at home when you're not physically at the tournament? Like, what you you're the, the people watching at home, what are they missing that you're seeing as someone who's there? Well, if if I was to cover a tournament from home, we we are given access by remote by video, so we do the press conferences from from uh, from home across Zoom or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's the only interaction you can get with players. Now we've we've actually had that even though we were in Paris, because of the bubbles, because trying to protect everybody from catching COVID nineteen, the players were in a bubble, and so were all the administrators and the staff. So, as press, although we took tests and things like that, we were not allowed to physically interact with players or coaches. So players were in a room doing a press conference on Zoom, while we were outside the room, sitting there talking to them on our computer. And yet we could see them and wave to them. So it's a very odd situation. The greatest thing about being on site to, to attend a tournament is, of course, you can you can go and watch the match on court and you get a different perspective than you do on TV. And you can hear things that happen and see things and talk to people. But the, the real thing that helps to write features and different articles is to be able to go into the players' lounge, which we have the luxury of doing as being part of the the International Tennis Writers Association, because we're the sort of respected journalists, the well-known ones around the world. We are allowed automatic access to those players' lounges and meeting areas in tournaments. We can then, in a very polite way, talk to players who are there if if they're willing to talk to us, or most commonly run into coaches who we've met over the years and people attached to the to the tour commentators and things and get additional perspective from them that enhance writing. So we've not been able to do that over the last year because of COVID. That's that access has all been shut to us, but usually, and hopefully again soon, we will be able to go into the players lounge, talk to coaches after matches. We talked to Serena Williams coach. He would come and talk to the press and things like that. So you have much greater ability to cover the sport if you're actually there. In in terms of, Covered one one of the other articles you wrote that I loved was um, looking at just the the slog it is for really everyone on the circuit, but particularly the the younger ones, the ones trying to make a name for themselves, the ones who aren't winning the millions at every tournament. I mean, how did you come up with that idea, and what what is it that in, inspired you about about that story? The these younger players who just lose so much more often than they win i don't know i don't know if there was a particular moment that i sort of came up with the idea i'm sure it was but i can't remember it but it was probably i do remember in golf hearing colin montgomery who was a scottish player who very famous he won he was the best player in europe for seven years in a row he won what's called the order of merit so he won the most money but he never won a major so people always said to him you know thought of him as a bit of a failure and I, I thought, well, this is a bit hard. And he said once that, you know, there are 100, well, in fact, I think somebody in tennis said there are 128 players in a Grand Slam draw uh, in singles. 
only one of them wins the tournament. Everybody else loses. So does that mean 127 players have, fa have failed that week or those two weeks? So that got me thinking about it. And then I looked at the, the stats for how many players have an actual positive win-loss record in their careers. And if you use 200 matches as the base, as the criteria, then it's, it's remarkable. There are only a, about a few hundred people who actually have won more matches than they've lost. And you look down the list, there are some big names, some names people would recognise, who actually have lost more often than they win. And I just thought that must be, these are the best people in the world at their jobs. And yet they're failing, in inverted commas, more often than they're, that they're succeeding. And I, I remember speaking to a French player called Julien Beneteau about this. And it's funny because, you know, when you talk to players, because I looked at his record, he, he was basically 50-50. He, he was close to the end of his career. And he was really, he'd made a lot of money in his career. He'd won a doubles Grand Slam title, but he'd never won a singles title at all. And he'd, he had a slightly negative win-loss record. And he said, this is something, he's, he's quite well connected. He's got some CEO-style friends in France. And he said, I was, I was talking to these people last week and telling them, I fail every week. I lose every week. And he said they could not get their head around it at all because they were just like, what? You know, you're supposed to be the best in the world. You know, you're in the top 10 in your country at, at, at your job and you're losing every week. What are you talking about? But he said, you know, I feel like I fail and I have to go to recover from that failure next week and do it again and again and again and again. And that's what they struggle to understand, the mental uh strength and hardship that that causes it, it's a fast if that, that sort of thing fascinates me those kind of interesting mental dynamics because tennis in particular above almost all other sports is so mental you're out there on your own you've got to figure out solutions while you're on the court no one's helping you you haven't got a coach sat next to you so it's about what's going on in your head and some people are brilliant at it and a lot of people struggle it's not easy I, I love that article and i had my kids read it because you know, my son played in a tennis tournament and he lost and he didn't want to play again for a while it's like no but but that's what tennis is it, it, yeah. it's not the winning it's more often the losing even at the top levels well as a young player especially you know you go from being when you first start playing as a junior you lose way more often than you win because you're just getting established then if you're a really top even if you're like number one in the world junior you're winning loads you win titles and then you go to try to be a, a senior to the pro tour and you get killed for a, a year or two. Unless you're amazing, you're going to be losing a lot. And so you're going to be losing first, second round every week. You will feel, if you're not careful, you will feel like a failure and you have to bounce back from that. And it's, that's, not a, uh, that's not a normal thing to do. You know, sport is very weird like that. I don't think you would, when you're, if you're working in a normal job, if you're, a, if you're working in an office, you're not doing a really shit job one day terrible job one day and then recovering from that to do a really good job the next it's it doesn't work like that it's a much more much more of a progression but tennis and sport is is pretty brutal in that way and are there any books you found that go into that any books you love about tennis as the sport and or the resilience you need to keep playing in the face of all the loss because of course you're a player as well in addition yeah to Reporting. I mean, there's not there's not really a book about resilience, I don't think, which is interesting. That might be a good idea. I mean, there's there are books about there's a, a guy who played in the 60s and 70s called Cliff Ritchie in the US who wrote a book called Acing Depression, 
because he suffered um, severely from depression during his career. He was a he was a champion. You know, he won a lot of titles. So that people struggle, and he's written a great book for them, which is courses is more uh, is even more relevant these days with Naomi Osaka saying that she's struggling from anxiety and depression. Marty Fish did. Lots of players have. Lots of players don't talk about it. The ultimate, the two books that are uh, are worth reading, definitely are Brad Gilbert's book about winning ugly, which is about you know using your mind to win. You know, doing everything you can to win. Doesn't matter whether you've got the best game ever. Just making the best of yourself and making other people play badly and it's all that sort of stuff that's quite fun the best book if you're a kid to read is the inner game of tennis by timothy galway which i read i think when i was about 11 or 12 and it's about the psychological side of of sport and tennis and it's about getting yourself to a point where you just play and you don't think the the ultimate aim is to you know, they talk about being in the zone. It's where you don't think about anything. You're just playing. Nothing's going through your mind. Empty your mind. It, it splits your self into two. So you're, the doing part is self one, So you, where you actually just play the shots. And self two is the one that says, what was that? Why did you do that? The critical side. And you've got to shut out that, that second half. I mean, your kids, they should read that. It's a brilliant book. Oh, I'll check that out. And There's also one in golf. Same guy the inner game of golf ah, okay. and they're, they're, they're very I mean golf and tennis are very similar mentally because again golf you know you're standing there with a ball that's not moving and you can't work out why you can't hit it straight it's frustrating and you mentioned that Naomi Osaka's decision did, did that surprise you or yeah yeah I mean it was a bit of a shock because um I mean it's it's a it's a very uh layered discussion there's, there is a lot to it, clearly. I mean, the, the ultimate part of it is that if she's suffering from anxiety and depression, then I would like her to get some help and hope that she's okay first, first off. But the way she, the way it all unraveled, um, you know, deciding that she was not going to do press conferences and singling out press conferences as opposed to TV things um, was just was was awkward because it immediately got journalists' backs up. They thought, oh, well, you know, what? why not? Why are press conferences so difficult? And people said, you know, actually, she's always received very good press. You know, it's uh, she was, the, the press are very nice to her because she's a really interesting person. She was always really good in press. She would come out with some funny stuff. Um, she, But she's introverted, but she was interesting. But of course, you know, the more you learn about depression and anxiety, none of that really matters it's just it's just that she's suffering from it and if that's the way it comes out for her um then clearly that's an issue but it's going to be a, a, an issue that will be difficult for her um, going forward because at the moment all players have to do a press conference after their match so either she does it gets help hopefully um feels better about doing it and i think you know the press will be receptive to her will be very understanding and hoping and will be almost doubly nice you know, I don't think she ever got bad press, but that's not, again, that's not really what goes on in someone's mind. That's, mm. it doesn't really matter. It's just the, the, the sheer process of doing it that clearly causes her difficulty. So I hope she um, recovers from it and I hope she improves and, and feels better. But it, it was, it's a strange situation. I think it could have been handled better on all sides. She probably should have just told the tournament beforehand in an ideal world, just said, look, I'm suffering from anxiety and depression, which I know is not an easy thing to admit. Mm -hmm. 
and then they would have said okay fine we're not going to we're not going to fine you we will explain that to the to the media uh, maybe we'll find a better way of doing it or a different way of doing it and from her point of view uh you know that then the, from the tournament's point of view they should have they would have reacted differently instead of saying you'll be fined every time you miss a press conference you could be suspended so mm -hmm. it was it was a not an ideal situation so the least it's been interesting to me just the attention it's getting people who don't follow tennis are suddenly intrigued and it just i mean cross industries just getting the mental health piece into the conversation it's been it's been interesting yeah it's good to it's good to have mental health as an issue absolutely and i've written about it before with marty fish the american yeah, player who yeah. suffered from severe anxiety um, and it almost it forced basically an early end to his career he managed to come back a little bit but not properly um, and he's still dealing with it but he's done a really great job but it also opens the door especially because of social media which can be so brutal mm. it opens the door to news to, to journalists being criticized immediately because people jumped on the bandwagon and thought it was because we were asking her bad questions and being, you know, awful to her. No wonder, no wonder she's suffering from this because she gets a bad time from rubbish journalists and everyone was grouped into the same thing. It's, it was, it's a very um, easy thing to do, especially post Trump, you know, all journalists are bad, etc. Mm. Um, we got grouped into that. And I think that's a dangerous, a dangerous thing to happen. Um, you know, and personally on social media, I will hit back at people who criticize me for stuff like that because it's totally wrong. And I know these people don't know what they're talking about, but, um, you know, it can, that sort of you, people, journalists get a lot of abuse on, on social media. Mm. And for some people that also is really difficult to, to take. So I think it's dangerous to, to open that sort of box. Mm. Well, it's yeah, certainly an, an interesting time. And then coming out of COVID, and of course, Wimbledon's going to look very different this year than in than it has in in past years. I mean, um, are you how are you looking forward to covering it just uh, with all the restrictions in place and just looking like a very different tournament without the usual corporate hospitality and all the throngs of people? And like, yeah, it, it's going to be very different. I mean, it's great to have Wimbledon because we didn't have it last year, of course. Mm -hmm. um, it cancelled partly because it was very clever and had pandemic insurance Who unlike knew? the other i mean the australian open had it until six months before covid hit and it, it had run out and they didn't renew it because of that they couldn't so they were very unlucky no it's it's good to have wimbledon no matter no question it's going to be very different with i think 25 percent fans from a journalist point of view it's going to be a very like we just experienced in paris where you're on site but you have no access, no physical access to players or coaches. There's only 25% of journalists allowed on site too. So there will be about 100 written and radio journalists there instead of 400. Everyone else will be doing it from home. But we will still, even though we're there, we will still be doing all press conferences, all interviews remotely from our desk. We have the advantage that we can go and watch matches. And it'll be a slightly strange situation given the fact that outside the gates, once you step out of the gates... You know, in general, life is pretty normal right now because we can meet indoors and outdoors. We can eat indoors and outdoors. So you could have a situation where we are sat at our desks interviewing the players from our desk, uh, doing press conferences from our desk. Players, players are in a total bubble. They'll be going from a hotel to a site and back, nothing else. And yet we step outside the gates and the pub up the road will be absolutely rammed. You know, so it'll be very strange from that 
that sense. But I think just the fact that they are able to have some fans, 25%, will still create a really good atmosphere. So from a tennis point of view, it'll be fine. But from a working point of view, it's not ideal. It's just what we have to uh, accept for now. Well, looking forward to hearing your coverage. I'm sure it'll be fabulous despite the restrictions. But thank you very much for joining us. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me.